This is a Village Soundcast Network original production. Hi, and welcome to Lens Me Your Ears, the movie podcast that takes a look at new films and combines them with films from days gone by based on a similar theme or director or star or genre or what have you, and uh, ties it all together in a big cinematic package. My name is Stephen Cook, and I'm an arts writer with Chronicle Herald here in Halifax. My name is Karsten Knox. I write about film on a blog called Flaw in the Iris. You can find it at halifaxbloggers.ca. I'm also the CTV Morning Live movie guru. And because, of course, we're still in the middle of a pandemic, it's uh, the end of June here uh, where we are in Halifax, and we still don't have theaters open. It, it seems to be happening soon, perhaps, with some uh, finally long-awaited new releases <laughs> making their appearance on a big screen. But we thought maybe uh, before that happens, and it may happen before we get to our next show, we thought we'd take another stab at the Roger Ebert great movies list. Now, uh, Roger Ebert, the great Chicago-based film critic who sadly no longer with us, uh, had a regular column, which he later turned into three books, uh, Roger Ebert's great movies, and uh, basically going through uh, the cinematic classics of years past and years present, reassessing them and, and revisiting them. And it's a great way to, to kind of catch up with some of these cinematic marvels. So we're going to take a look at, at three films that uh, we felt needed a revisit, or in some cases, a, a visit for the first time uh just kind of pulled at random from the list no connection between them and uh those films are john ford's the grapes of wrath robert altman's three women and spike lee's the 25th hour so stay tuned and we'll be back with the grapes of wrath right after this Stephen, it's great to be back here chatting with you uh, remotely, of course, about films. And uh, yeah, I, I, uh, I like our selection this time. I like the fact that uh, these three films are otherwise uh, very different from different eras. And, uh, you know, and I I'm looking forward to discussing what makes them perhaps still relevant, if they are still relevant to our current day. Um, now, uh, starting with The Grapes of Wrath, which uh, 1940, directed by John Ford, based on the 1939 Pulitzer Prize winning novel by John Steinbeck. Um, one of the things about this, of course, right off that occurs to me is that this film, which seems, which is, uh, you know, 80 years old this year, um, but when it was made, it was very present. It was very current day. I mean, they were talking about people migrating during the Great Depression, which was just sort of wrapping up at the beginning of the, uh, 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 the Second World War. And uh, that struck me about the film. It's like, oh, right, this is actually talking to people about stuff that's happening in their current day. Now, um, I was kind of torn watching The Grapes of Wrath. I'd seen it back in high school. I remember reading the book. It was genuinely homework for me at the time. So I don't think I appreciated it a whole lot as a teenager. Watching it again, um, I found the script wildly sentimental in places with characters prone to speaking in long rambling yes. monologues where Very they speechy. basically where they basically say the movie's themes and behave like cartoon characters like there are aspects of it that felt very much like oh this is a theatrical production put to screen um, and I think that's just due to the air that the film was made and that those parts haven't aged that well 
But then there are things about the film that have aged really extraordinarily well. I mean, the politics may as well be about today. It's remarkably astute. You have this character, this lead character, Tom Joad, who finds this community spirit where one man owns a million acres and 100,000 farmers go hungry um, as a story about the cost of capitalism and how workers need to unite to protect their rights and about the concerns over police brutality and how migrants move from one place to another due to economic necessity. I mean, that might as well be telling the story of right now. And that was the thing about the film that I liked the most. Yeah, this, this, uh, I mean, uh, this film may not have been so relevant, say 20, 30 years ago, but, but now when, uh, you know, the economy's in the tank, uh, you know, people, uh, can't, uh, you know, the, the, the mega corporation, farming corporations, agribusiness has, has driven people out of, uh, out of the farming business. There aren't, um, there aren't necessarily more young people following in family footsteps. You know, in, in the 1930s, they couldn't follow in their family footsteps because the farms have been taken away from them. And, uh, you know, the attitude this film has towards the police feels very au courant. Uh, so it, you know, it, it's interesting how, how things, uh, you know, history kind of repeats itself in a way. Um, and, uh, you know, the Jodes are, you know, they go to California because they've been told there are jobs there and then have to scramble and scrape to pick up whatever kind of work they can, even when some of it seems less than ethical or, or desirable. And, uh, you know, maybe maybe the, the, the east to west migration has been transplanted by a, a south to north migration, but it's still you know, very much uh, the same kind of story, the same kind of things happening all over again. Uh, and the, the film is, is very interesting because it become, comes from a big studio, uh, which was controlled by a bank at the time. And the film has, you know, the Steinbeck certainly has no love for banks in his prose. I mean, the, the scene where one of the one of the farmers wants to know who do I have to go and shoot? Um, and the, 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 the process server tells him, well, you know, it's like, the, the bank controls the land, but the bank's controlled by the, like, you know, the comp, the big shots back East. And you know, they're just, uh, you know, they're just working for a company. You can't shoot a, a company and it's, it's, it's sort of comedic, but also sort of a terrifying premonition of, of multi conglomerates just kind of sucking up everything. And it's just, uh, it's, you know, terrifyingly close to the bone really in a lot of ways. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, now, we should mention what the plot is for anyone who hasn't read the book or don't doesn't know this is a classic film, I suppose. That, uh, the, but, I mean, myself, like I said, I hadn't seen it in years. But it's a story of a family of Oklahoma uh, farmers, uh, the Jodes, who in the Depression, their land has been taken away by their banks, their livelihood of living off the land is gone due to drought. And so they drive to California for the promise of work as fruit pickers, but find labor unrest. They find far too many people want work, far too little of it to go around. The ostensible lead is Tom Joad, played by Henry Fonda, who is like a young Clint Eastwood here. He's super cool, who's just out of prison, and he comes home to find the sort of valley of despair. He uh, first meets Jim Cozy, played by John Carradine, who's a former priest who's lost his faith but found a certain peace in the grip of, I guess, a mild insanity. And then he runs into an old family friend, Muley Graves, uh, played by John Quaylen, who's also gone kind of crazy from having lost his land, and he fills Tom in on what's going on. It's all very gothic. Um, once the family gets on the road, I found the film definitely focused, 
And by the second act, when they're in this gated work camp to pick peaches, and the previous workers have been thrown out because they wouldn't accept the lower wage, that's when the story really starts to cook and where Tom finds his sort of community conscience. Um, you know, and, and uh, yeah, I found it a fascinating film in terms of its look, and this is something that I really wanted to mention. Um, you know, cinematography by Greg Tolland, who shot Orson Welles' Citizen Kane in that high-contrast black and white, this deliberate, thoughtful camera work, and the great locations. There's stuff here that's in the studio in the beginning. I think a lot of the... Um, a lot of the stuff in Oklahoma is shot in studio, uh, but uh, on the on the road in the fields later on, it feels very much obviously they're in California, so that's where they shot. Uh, and Roger Ebert remarked on it too in his review. Now, when we do these Roger Ebert, um, you know, look at his great films, uh, I like to go back and and read what he said, what he wrote about these films, and uh, and mention that's what we've done the th in the three times before. Um, and here's what he said about it. And in fact, I I very much agreed with Roger on this. Um, it's a film that uses realistic black and white cinematography to temper its sentiment and provide a documentary quality to scenes like the entry into the Oki Transient Camp near the California border, even though the Jode Farm is a studio set Ford liked to shoot on location and re records journey down Route 66 from the Dust Bowl through New Mexico and Arizona past shabby gas stations and roadside diners. The dialogue sometimes grows a little too preachy to fit within the simple vernacular of farmers and Tom Jode's famous farewell to Ma, wherever there's a fight uh, so hungry people can eat, I'll be there. Wherever there's a cop beating up a guy, I'll be there. Always sounds to me like writing, not spontaneous expression. So anyway, that's what I was getting at in terms of the parts of the film that feels very, very speechy and very speechifying. But uh, but boy, does it look good. And uh, and it's it's uh, it's it's great sort of Tom Ford. Uh, sorry, <laughs> John Ford. um camera work is is uh is just remarkable to me and uh that's the part of the film that that i got swept up in now uh i guess john ford was a fairly right-wing guy it's interesting you mentioned the banks being in charge of the studio yeah. john ford doing these grand westerns this feels not like his grand westerns at all no it's i mean he was basically handed the assignment by daryl f zanuck who was the studio chief at 20th century fox uh because he he was just so taken by the novel and he he'd done similar projects in the past and would do them in the future fox had a had a reputation for you know making what they call quality pictures that dealt with social issues um you know gentleman's agreement with gregory peck would be a few years in the future um the oxbow incident a uh, film about a lynching um directed not by ford but by william wyler uh, i think uh, they had recently made that film before making grapes of wrath and uh I, I guess he was kind of he. I mean, he he says he just picked Ford because Ford was the best director that they had under contract, basically, and uh, and that's what uh, led him to not because he felt that he was particularly suited to the material, but felt that he would be able to kind of maybe counterbalance the more radical aspects of of Steinbeck's prose. I, I get the feeling that that's you know what he was going for. Um, not only Johnson worked on the screenplay based on the novel, but uh, I think Steinbeck was involved to some degree um uh, maybe not day to day but but certainly had some say in the the um the making of the film but uh i i think he felt that ford would maybe highlight the family aspects of of the story which is something that that, that 
Ford had done in the past. He was he was uh, you know very much a sentimentalist. Uh, a lot of his films have strong mother figures, which of course Grapes of Wrath certainly does with uh, with Jane Darwell playing Ma Jode here, and uh, and and I think I think they struck a good balance. Um, you know, it was not the sort of film that we're we're used to seeing from Hollywood in this period. I think, uh, you know, King Vidor made a film called Our Daily Bread that was uh, a, a notable film about uh, about uh, farm workers uh, from this time period. So there are other examples, but The Grapes of Wrath, of course, just stands head and shoulders above above the other films of this time. But 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 I think Zanuck liked to take chances. He liked to s- stir up trouble not trouble but you know controversy never never heard a movie i don't think in his mind and uh and in fact uh, there's a story that uh one of the people who recommended this story to him was the wife of a chase national bank executive which was the bank that controlled the the uh the company she was just so taken by the story and felt it would be a great property for 20th century fox but um but yeah ford was you know his his politics were fairly right leaning uh from what reading I've done on on Ford, some might say he was maybe more of a libertarian than a hardcore right wing Republican, but but certainly he he held fast to these traditional values, and so on, and, and that's clearly evident uh, anytime Ma Joad makes a speech, which is kind of what she does a lot in this film, especially uh, at the end of the film, uh, and and she may not have actually been his first choice to play that part. I know that there are stories about Beulah Bondi, who was the mom in um, in. Uh, it's a wonderful life uh, might have been a better choice, and then she actually wanted the role. But ultimately, I think Jane Darwell was probably under contract to Fox, or something like that. You know, which may have been the ultimate decision about that. But uh, but th- there is a good balance there. I mean, then the next film that Ford would make would be How Green Was Our Valley, um, or How Green Was My Valley, about a family of uh, Welsh coal miners. The film that famously beat out Citizen Kane uh, at the Oscars uh, uh, in 1940. So. Um, you know that that's again not a grand epic western it's a you know a more intimate family drama about coal miners in in a welsh mining town created on the 20th century fox backlot but um you know he, he he was able to kind of tackle more intimate stories as well as the sweeping westerns like stagecoach and so on and and he he had a great uh he, he certainly had a great collaborator in uh, in henry fonda they worked together um as far as dramas go, they worked together seven times, seven collaborations. That's a, that's a pretty substantial number, and all all wonderful films. And there's and Fonda was was more of a left leaning uh, guy as well. And somehow they were able to find kind of middle ground and and work together very sympathetically. Yeah, it's funny there, eh? That uh, that I guess uh, a good story is a good story, and maybe they didn't let uh, uh, politics get in the way of of that. And I, I appreciate I appreciate that as you know, those kinds of creative collaborations. Um, but, uh, yeah, you know, you mentioned, uh, Jane Darwell or Darwell, uh, as Ma Jode, you know, they, she may not have been their first choice, but she did win the best actress for her role as Ma Jode, which is awesome. You know, good for them. Uh, Grapes of Wrath was nominated for a number of Academy Awards, including best picture, but it lost that year to Rebecca, the, uh, Alfred Hitchcock film, which I found interesting. That's an interesting, choice i i don't know that rebecca has is aged i mean hitchcock of course is is a grand master of filmmaking but uh, i don't know if con- people consider rebecca to be one of his great films and you know in terms of uh the stature that these features have through time and and uh i think grapes of wrath is 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 probably a lot more beloved than rebecca is i but you tell me if you think otherwise uh 
Rebecca is a great film. That's not necessarily a great Hitchcock film. Um, I mean, he was working with another guy who was like Zanuck. He was working with David Oselznick, who basically, you know, told him what films to make, essentially. Um, and, uh, you know, obviously his sense was good because Rebecca was a huge hit. You know, it was his first American film. and It was a huge hit and won the won the Academy Award for, for Selznick, if not for Hitchcock, who didn't win Best Director. But, uh, but Graves of Wrath certainly... You know, has I, I find it has much more emotional impact. It was much more uh, of its time. I mean, I, Rebecca is like a gothic romantic mystery. It's not a suspense thriller like Hitchcock was famous for, but uh, but it is filled with atmosphere and menace and and um, you know certainly Hitchcockian touches throughout and some great performances. But um, but the Grapes of Wrath is just you know when it's really firing on all cylinders, uh, it, it 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 really is a, a punch to the gut in so many ways. Uh, you know, I mean, I, I it's been a couple of weeks since I've watched it, and I still can't stop thinking about some of the scenes, like the where the where the the thugs. I mean, the, 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 there's a blend of like sheriffs, cops, hired goons, and security guards, and it, sometimes the lines kind of blur between who's actually like you know wielding power on behalf of the landowners and the uh, the you know the the, the industrial farm uh, owners over the course of the film. But but the you know. The, it, there's clearly they're all clearly in cahoots um it's it's very unusual uh, for a film at that time because of course we're still in the era of the production code and uh one of the uh one of the tenets of the production code is that you can't show you know officers of the law in a negative light and yet this film does it in ways that still seem incredibly potent today which is an amazing facet of this film that that seems even more powerful now than it probably did back in 1940 yeah no absolutely i mean the the people the man is is uh <laughs> is definitely you don't get a lot of love for the man in this film and uh and it uh i i really enjoyed um and i guess i sort of mentioned this is is tom jode's kind of character arc you know from from a guy who just gets out of prison and he's He's cool and he's toughened by that, but he's clearly still a leader in his family. Like he's still, everyone looks to him to to uh, be a decision maker. And uh, and as we go along, you know, he's restless. He he doesn't want to just sit in the camp and uh, and just do what he's told. He wants to find out what's going on when he arrives in these places. And that's when he finds out about the uh, the unionizing and this effort to to get together to. Uh, to consolidate a little bit of power against the people who are in charge. And, uh, you know, and I, I, uh, I appreciated that. And I appreciated that he felt that, you know, at a certain point he had to, you know, he was going to be a danger to his family if he stayed with them. So he needed to go out and, uh, and, and fight the good fight. And all of that is, uh, is really compelling stuff. And wow, you know, I, Henry Fonda, man, I mean, it just, what a performance! What a performer! Uh, I've seen him, of course, in a few things when he later in life, but uh, but he was so compelling in this lead role. Yeah, he he did this uh, right after he was Abraham Lincoln in Young Mister Lincoln, and he was in uh, Drums Along the Mohawk with uh, with Ford, and then uh, they wouldn't work together until after the war. Um, well, he actually worked on a documentary about the war. Uh, probably his narrator but uh but then comes back to do my darling clementine um playing uh, wyatt earp um in the the john ford's version of the the gunfight at the okay corral and that's that's a pretty amazing transformation especially because he's older and uh, the war experiences has changed him somewhat um but but here uh just the 
you know, as unsubtle as some scenes in the film are, uh, the sort of gradual politicization of Tom Jode's character from a guy who was in prison for killing a guy in a barroom brawl um, to, you know, the, the guy who has to fight back against a, a thug with a trenchant um, in the dead of night. Uh, you know, it's just, it's so well handed, handled and his performance is just so, so graceful and, and, and honest and, and believable. Um, you know, and, and, which is not something that always happens in Ford movies. You know, Ford is quite often fond of, of broad strokes, especially if you look at some of the Westerns with, um, with John Wayne and so on. But, but here, um, you know, Fonda gives a very different kind of performance than you get in one of those Westerns. Um, and, uh, you know, like, you know, like you say, that final scene where he realizes he's got to go off and, and fight the good fight is, is, is pretty powerful stuff. Um, and it's interesting. I mean, you know, he, he, kills a either a cop or a guard you know in self-defense and doesn't have to pay the price for it necessarily which is also something under the production code which is also something they able that we're able to get away with so it's it's like maybe because uh you know maybe because gone with the wind was able to flaunt the code a little bit a year before that that maybe they were able to get away with some things that wouldn't normally happen in a feature film at the time i don't know but uh uh, it, it's it's interesting how this film kind of breaks some boundaries for its time. Welcome back to Lens Me Your Ears, the film podcast that takes a look at newer films and ties them into other films from days gone by. Uh, but we're not doing that today. So today we're 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 doing another uh, stab at Roger Ebert's great movies list from his uh, his numerous books. Uh, full of essays about reevaluating, reappraising the classics of the cinematic canon, if you will. And uh, there, are, there are certainly lots of lists out there of great films, um, for better or for worse. There's the the, the regular sight and sound poll, which uh, you know is one of the more famous ones, which for years and years had Citizen Kane kind of welded in at number one, and then eventually uh, let Vertigo <laughs> through its polling. Uh, Vertigo uh, took over the top spot. Uh, and uh, and then there's there's the AFI list, which is a little more constrictive because it's mostly American or American produced films, so it's not quite as wide ranging. Um, and uh, you know, there's any number of clickbait <laughs> lists of movies out there. Um, you know, and there's certainly lists of Academy Award winners and other award winners and so on. But uh, the Ebert list, I like it because a, it's fairly random. Uh, it's 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 basically it's based purely on his own kind of whatever desire of whatever he wants to watch or revisit. And I actually like the randomness of it. And it's not constricted by genre or country or decade or, you know, golden age, so to speak, or what have you. It's, it's a very idiosyncratic list. And I'm as an idiosyncratic kind of person, I kind of like um, wandering through uh, his prose and what he has to say about uh, some of these films, which uh, aren't necessarily connected to one another. Just, it was a week to week column um, where he just, pulled out some film that had been sitting in the back of his mind and uh, he decided to look at it. Now, one of those films, and, and sometimes there are films that he felt were worthy of reappraisal and um, of uh, of giving a, another chance if maybe they were so well received at the time. And I think that this film that we're going to look at next, Robert Altman's Three Women from 1977, is just one such film. It's um, It comes uh, at a time when um, Altman had just reached his peak couple of years before with Nashville uh generally touted at his as his great 
you know, American film masterpiece and one of the greatest films of the 1970s. Uh, and uh, this is uh, when things are starting to ebb. He'd already made um, uh, his Buffalo Bill movie with Paul Newman, which was not regarded as a great uh, artistic success. Uh, and here he is back with uh, 20th Century Fox, the studio that released MASH, the film that really put his uh, career and his style of filmmaking uh, on the map. Uh, about uh, seven years earlier, and uh, it's it's an unusual film. It's it's based uh, on a dream that the director had. He had he had a dream about three women living in the desert, uh, you know, interacting, and and um, you know, and, and and the effect of this kind of isolation and uh, this remote life and and the sort of societal pressures on their collective psyches and that and it was it was a very vague kind of idea that he had that he just one day went into 20th century fox and basically sold them on the idea of this film uh without even having a script for it at that point you know that, at that you know he was he was still riding pretty high on his reputation and and a string of well-received international hits of course that you know they loved his films in europe as well um and uh you know it, it was kind of a prestige film, filmmaker could also make these films on a pretty well-controlled budget and then they wouldn't be a big loss you know even if they just broke even they'd still be kind of a feather in their cap for the studios and uh and so you know this film was uh which which bears a strong resemblance to persona by ingmar bergman from uh from the late 60s um you know that it has that very sort of european kind of feel set but in you know in english in an american setting which is something that that altman really brought to the fore in this decade uh and uh, so so basically he came up with this uh this idea of a film and then of course he had to flesh it out into a story it's it's a rare example of a film where he's kind of just working from his own script not necessarily working with a with a co-writer as he would on say nashville or what have you and uh, of course, uh, that uh, opens up for much onset improvisation from his stars, which is uh, a key feature of his films, and uh, and and basically tells the the story of these three women that are um, all kind of living in this desert town. I guess you know the sort of the seedier side of the whole sort of Palm Springs, desert palms kind of area of California, and uh, we meet uh, Pinky Rose, played by Sissy Spacek. She's a young woman from Texas. And uh, she's uh, basically moved to California, ostensibly to get away from her family back home in Texas. And uh, she gets a job at a nursing home. Uh, it's basically kind of a, I don't know if candy striper is the right word, but but, but certainly an assistant, an aide, uh, an in intern to help uh, the residents of this nursing home. And she befriends co-worker Millie Lamoureux, played by Shelley Duvall, a frequent member of, of uh, the stock company of Robert Altman Players. And they're they're working together at this nursing home, which has, you know, fairly restrictive atmosphere in the workplace. They have to punch in their time cards, and the doctors and the supervisors are fairly, um, you know, fairly uh, strict in their supervision of the of the workers. And and they become friends. Uh, and 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 Millie is is an interesting case. Uh, you know, Pinky's from a small town in Texas. Millie is acting very sophisticated. She likes to, to sort of be kind of dressy she's always talking about diet and recipes and and glamour and 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 pinky uh becomes kind of attached to her uh but it turns out that, you know millie's not that well liked by anybody else either they work with or they live with at the um at the motel where they all seem to to congregate uh and and uh pinky just kind of uh considers her a sophisticated alternative to uh, to what she knew back back home in her backwater texas town 
and Millie Millie is from uh, Houston, so they have this like Texas connection. That's right. They have that Texas connection. Yeah. Um, so that that becomes a link for them, and uh, the third woman is it, it's a little more net. It's called Three Women. The third woman of this uh, triangle is uh, her. It's Willie Hart, played by Janice Rule, and she's a little harder to pin down. We we kind of we kind of just see her from a distance a lot of the time. Um, she's always uh, out painting these murals uh, in this empty swimming pool at this place called this, this kind of roadside tourist trap where everybody kind of hangs out. It's, it's, I guess, the only bar in town in this kind of dusty, remote, you know, seen better days kind of California town. And it's this roadside tourist trap where there, there is a bar and there's also a shooting range out back where, where everybody hangs out and fires off weapons. And uh, and dirt bikers are constantly circling on this track that goes around the shooting range. I'm not sure how that works without somebody taking a bullet at some time or another. But that's that's kind of this kind of dried up, desolate uh, environment they find themselves in. And uh, and Janice, or sorry, Willie. So we got Millie, Pinky, and Millie. Uh, and we find out that Pinky's name is actually Mildred. So she's actually Mildred, Millie, and Willie. Uh, you know, they they have this kind of offbeat relationship. And, and, and Willie is kind of seen at, like I said, she's seen at a distance. She's married to Edgar, who's a former Hollywood stunt double, who's kind of putting the moves on uh, on Pinky and Millie. Uh, he's kind of ignoring his, his wife a lot of the time. And, uh, and everything changes when... Uh, Millie and Pinky become roommates and their friendship goes off the rails and and Pinky uh, being very sensitive and she she can't stand being spurned uh, by Millie uh, attempts to commit suicide and that's where everything changes in the film everything changes on a dime because Pinky comes out of a coma and a completely different person she basically starts to co-opt Millie's kind of personality with a, a kind of a mean-spirited edge you know and 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 all of a sudden it's kind of like the shoe is on the other foot. Millie becomes the more subservient to the, the more domicile one. And, and uh, you know, th- this complete role reversal is what drives the latter half of the film. Uh, and I, I don't want to go into it too much more plot wise because there isn't really much of a plot. It's, it, it is a very ethereal dreamlike kind of film as we watch these women kind of their roles kind of shift and, and, uh, take different forms over the course of the film but but it's uh it is an unusual film it's it does feel very 70s with this soft focus shot by charles rocher the cinematographer who who also made one of your favorites uh semi-tough yeah he was the cinematographer on that and uh he would shoot one more film for altman uh, a wedding not not the greatest uh, career in the world, but if some, he was able to adapt us to uh, to Altman's style of a lot of like long shots and a lot of pans and zooms and that kind of thing. It it definitely looks like a Robert Altman film, you know, while it has this dreamy, um, more ethereal aesthetic to it. And uh, I, I, you know, I, you kind of have to be in the right mood for this movie. I think you kind of have to be kind of sucked into the lives of these women. But I, I found them very intriguing and not really knowing where it was going to go or where it was going to wind up, I found kind of refreshing. Uh, at the same time, it does feel very much like a 1970s film. And the influence of, of Bergman's persona, which I saw, I probably watched it about a year or so ago. It's still, it's very, very present here uh, in, in a lot of ways, but it's still a, a very different film in in its kind of, you know, storytelling and, and the relationship with the third woman and, and so on. But it, it's definitely a film worth uh, investing some time in and, uh, and, getting to know these these characters as as they undergo all these changes 
Yeah, I, I you know, my, my association with Altman is that uh, he makes these large um, ensemble pieces where, like, I think those are the films I think of when I think of Altman. I think of uh, M.A.S.H., uh, Nashville, uh, The Player, and Gosford Park, those kinds of movies. But he also is the filmmaker behind uh, um, The Long Goodbye, which I would say Three Women is much more like that film, where there is a, an apartment location, there are there's a core characters, and then there are these other characters on the margins who we, we never really get to know, but just sort of circle the lead action. And... Uh, that's kind of the movie I would say if you wanted to watch uh, have a double feature of Altman, Three Women and The Long Goodbye might make for a, a really interesting, um, yeah, really interesting uh, 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 double feature for one evening. Um, but I, I don't think I like The Three Women as much as you did. I, <laughs> I, uh, I, you know, I feel like anytime someone sits beside you and says, okay, I'm going to tell you. Let me tell you about this dream I had last night. You're immediately like, okay, <laughs> yes. right. So there's a little bit of that. I think I agree with you in that when you said you have to be in the right mood for this. This is a mood kind of film. It's not interested in thrills. It's not interested in in a genre like, you know, Altman is the horror director and you feel like this could become a horror film. But it's not really about that. It is genuinely about him trying to flesh out this sort of dream language and identity and character. And that's what it's really it's really about. It's these mostly two women and how they flip, as you say, right through the middle, sort of a little past the, the midpoint of the film. This event happens where Pinky jumps into the pool and has this, this, uh, this health crisis. And then when she emerges from that, she switches identities in some ways with uh, with Millie, and um, you know, and and it becomes a, a different kind of film after that, and uh, and then um, Willie, the sort of haunted, pregnant wife of the uh, this the former stuntman who owns this property, this apartment building that they are living in, uh, she becomes a bigger part of the story later on, you know, and uh, I like the dream quality to it like that stuff is is interesting i liked um the way it's shot i liked how so much of it is shot either through water or with mirrors and glass is constantly being the 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 setups are constantly being the uh, the shots through either through glass or or with mirrors or through water and that becomes this constant regular sort of thematic uh, texture to the film, and, and that I thought was really interesting. I, I think as um, I think I became more interested in the form of the film rather than the content, which the content is, uh, yeah, it just there. It doesn't. It it's. It, I don't feel like there's much forward motion in the film. It's just a, a series of of scenes of characters sort of interacting with each other, and. Uh, and you know, and then this, and then at a certain point, it becomes almost as much about the sort of grotesque murals that Willie has been painting. Uh, as we keep getting more and more shots of those, and and the sort of psychedelic um, montages of imagery. Um, you know, I, I want to say uh, I, I went back to uh, Ebert's review, and he said this about the film. He said the movie is whole and complete without being lucid and logical. It circles back on itself. Altman says there are scenes of acute social observation. Actually, sorry. Uh, Altman said it circles back on itself. There are scenes of acute social observation, including the degrees of cruelty that Millie must endure, 
the details of specific behavior, as when Pinky squirts a cheese spread on crackers and then spills bottled shrimp cocktail on her dress. Much is made of specifics, how to use the time clock, how to get off early on Fridays, how we don't like the twins. Sometimes the details repeat as in a dream, the way Millie's yellow dresses always get caught in her car door, for example. Gerald Busby's ominous atonal score is a counterpoint to such daily events. Yeah, the um, the dreamlike elements, you know, it's, it is it's it is a thing. I think it's the thing that makes it feel mostly like a 1970s film. But, uh, but yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's, there's a string of films that have this kind of feel about them for better or worse uh things like play it as it lays uh i saw this thing called puzzle of a downfall child with faye dunaway that is never seen any release on home video i actually caught a weirdly cut interrupted by commercials tv movie version of it as a kid and i don't know if uh, cutting stuff out of it and inserting ads was a help or a hindrance to that film to be honest uh you know th- this kind of non-traditional non-linear storytelling um was very much in vogue. In fact, uh, in in Altman's films, there's a, an earlier film called Images from 1972 about um, Susanna York plays a, I think it was shot in Ireland, but she plays a housewife who's, um, she's kind of suffering from schizophrenia. And I, I suspect it was maybe inspired by Polanski's Repulsion because uh, there's some similarities to that film, you know, where he's basically, again, drawing inspiration from the global cinema and bringing it to, uh, even though it's shot in Ireland, it's sort of American filmmaking it's it's it seems to go in tandem quite well with with this film uh it's it is a hard one to uh to recommend just because it, portraying dreams on films in in film is is always is always kind of tough especially if you kind of sustain that atmosphere over the course of an entire film um you know they can't all be inception uh <laughs> it's you know the, it, there's there's often a you know i mean obviously that was very plot driven even though it was meant to capture this whole kind of dream within a dream within a dream kind of thing whereas here um you know it it does things seem to happen kind of randomly and and things aren't always explained um you know like the the scene where they she gets the parents to come out and visit uh where millie gets um pinky's parents to come out and visit and she just refuses to acknowledge their existence at all um you know she's you know completely turned her back on that part of her history in a kind of a cruel and vicious but way but obviously influenced by her 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 mental state um so you know the film doesn't do things you expect a film to do i guess and which is obviously what drew altman to the material but at the same time um you know is is probably an aspect of what started to push viewers away from his films you know after this he would make uh well he'd make a wedding uh which has, I believe, uh, SpaceX is in that as well, and Duval, and it's it's a little more of a conventional, I say conventional, but type of Altman film with a uh, a huge cast of characters interacting uh, over the course of a wedding. But but then he made Quintet, which was a sci-fi, um, you know, a more intimate drama about survivors of a you know post-apocalyptic winter with Paul Newman. That was a, a major flop and critical failure. Uh, and then he made uh, Health which didn't even get released. Uh, and that was the kind of, he made it with 20th Century Fox. Uh, there was some promotion of it as it was out on the sort of the festival circuit. And then they shelved it. They didn't even put it into wide release. And, uh, you know, good luck finding a copy. <laughs> not, you know, there are copies out there floating around, but good luck. You know, it, it's sort of the, the one film at kind of the end of the great uh, Altman era of the 70s that uh, just got buried completely. Um, you know, three, three Women was 
sort of like that. Uh, you know, it, it did get a release. It did play theaters around the country, but it's not a film that people were constantly returning to, I don't think, in the way that they were things like Nashville and McCabe and Mrs. Miller and Long Goodbye and, and so on. But, uh, you know, I, I find I, I do like this film uh, as as part of one of the more fringy Altman movies, uh, it, but it is a harder one to, to recommend, that's for sure. Yeah, I'm I'm with you there. Uh, I can I, I don't know who I would say. Oh, you should definitely see this. Uh, but uh, but uh, you know, in a certain kind of mood. Um, I also I would say though, probably the biggest draw for three women for me and to anyone who might be listening is the performances. Like Sissy Spacek and uh, Shelley Duvall are so good, and I think people forget how talented they are and uh especially Shelley Duvall who I don't think is really working in film anymore she had so many great roles in the 70s that um you know most people think of her for the shining but uh she is she did so many so much other great work and I just feel like the fabric of of American film in the 1970s is inexorably connected with her and uh and and her various parts and and her working frequently with Robert Altman uh she's something special here yeah, she really is. It's and she's playing. She's not playing someone who's glamorous, but she's playing someone who thinks she's glamorous, and and uh, and she just does that to the hilt. You know, she she she's she's like um, you know like Pinky does at the start of the film. She's obviously come to California to to find better opportunities and somehow wound up in this dead end town, but she's determined to make the most of it and 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 try and you know, be a cut above everybody around her, even if everybody around her completely ignores her. It's, it's a, you know, obviously the, her coworkers have been putting up with her for a long time and it's kind of amazingly cruel how they just, she's talking at their backs and they're just pretending that she's not there. And, um, you know, and she just soldiers on, uh, so wonderfully (laughs) over the course of the film. And, and you really feel for her, especially when Pinky turns on her, um, you know, you know, with, with or without justification, you know, may depend on your own point of view while you're watching it. But, but uh, the the dynamic between the two of them and the way that changes over the course of the film is is pretty remarkable. Hi, I'm Lindsay Cameron Wilson, host of the Food Podcast. But do you know what? It's not just about food; it's about people and their stories shared through the lens of food. The Food Podcast has been described as an audible fairy tale. How about that? You can find us on iTunes and Stitcher. So come join us. We would love to share our stories with you. So now in our third part of our uh, our Lends Me Your Ears uh, look back at uh, Roger Ebert's great movies, our actual fourth fourth <laughs> episode of looking back at his great movies, uh, his lists of great movies. We're going to talk about uh, The 25th Hour from 2002, uh, a screenplay by, by David Benioff based on his book and directed by Spike Lee. Uh, Spike Lee, who we spoke about in the last uh, episode, we mentioned his uh, Defy Bloods, his recent feature film on Netflix. This is... One of his films, and before we started recording, we were talking about whether or not this is uh, work for hire, or whether this is, uh, you know, how this, how he chose to do this project. Now, I don't think it's work for hire. Like, I don't think it's it's something he just did for the studios, the Inside Man. I mean, it feels more personal than that. Maybe because 
it's such a New York movie. But uh, of course, what's obvious about this is that it, it is not. There are there are no lead uh, characters who are African American, so that might make it seem a little less uh, personal to some compared to some other Spike Lee films. But it it's certainly a great film, and uh, I was I, I'd seen it once before, and rewatching it again, I was reminded of the power of this film. It's something special, and it's it's uh, it's the first feature film to really address the uh, events of, of September 11th, 2001. Um, and it's the first post 9-11 movie and, and it definitely is haunted by the events of 9-11. If not directly in the, narr- in the narrative, it, it's certainly in its spirit. Um, the opening credits take place at Ground Zero and uh, the story basically is that uh, Edward Norton plays a guy named Monty Brogan. He's uh, Irish-American drug dealer in New York City who's doing pretty well for himself for a while. He has a nice brownstone apartment. He's a gorgeous girlfriend named Naturell, played by Rosario Dawson. And he, very early on, he rescues a dog from a beating uh, on one of the bridges in New York. Uh, He he names the dog Doyle, and uh, and the dog becomes his constant companion. Uh, And he drives a vintage Super B yellow muscle car but somebody has ratted him out. Someone knew where he kept his drugs and his money in his and his money in in his apartment. And he's a little concerned that it might have been natural. It might have been his girlfriend. So this film takes place in the basically 24 hours before he goes to prison. He's agreed to go. He's going to go to prison. He's been convicted. He's going to go for seven years. So this is his last night of freedom, and the weight of the world is on his shoulders. He's he has. Uh, he goes to a bar to meet up with his pals, and he has this sort of self-piteous, racist rant about all the people in New York City, and that's really struck me. It's both funny and bitter, and uh, you know he has these, uh, and it's basically self-loathing manifest as a you know lashing out at all the people and all the different communities around him in New York City. Now his buddies that I mentioned, Francis Xavier Slaughtery, played by Barry Pepper. He's a trader, a uh, Wall Street trader who lives in an apartment overlooking Ground Zero. And then there's Jacob, played by Philip Seymour Hoffman, as a teacher who basically drools over one of his students, played by Anna Paquin. Uh, and Anna Paquin, of course, shows up later in the film at a nightclub that they're all going to. Uh, this is one of Philip Seymour Hoffman's very I would say recognizable character roles where he plays someone who is who's has no confidence and is just barely hanging on. He knows what's right and wrong, but the question is will he will he do what's what's right given the opportunity to make the wrong choice. Um, so the conversations between Frank or Francis uh, Barry Pepper's character and Jake Jacob uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman's character are really great. You really get a sense that these are characters that have known each other forever. They don't get as lo- along as well as they might have when they were in high school or in grade school because it is, as adults their lives have taken them in different directions. Um, and the film takes time exploring their relationships while the axe hangs over Monty's head for the whole evening. Um, you know, I think that the 25th hour is a morality tale with Monty going away for a long time because he's lived off other people's suffering, and that is as it should be. And it, his friends are all wrestling with their complacency, how they didn't help him, how they didn't try to get him away from that. And then also their complicity in his fate. They're all looking at their lives in the frame of his mistake and their own mistakes, including Monty's father, played by Brian Cox, who blames himself. Um, 
there's a this is a really wonderful film it's about regret and it's about um morality and about trying to do the right thing in life and uh and i it's all it's full of great performances and it's it's a it's i would say maybe uh slicker and more mainstream than some of uh, spike lee's films uh but no less powerful because of it uh what did you think of it Stephen? i i really enjoyed this film it's 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 certainly i mean it just everything clicks it's a great screenplay uh, he, he's got a, a Spike Lee's got a very strong story to work from that still allows him to kind of work within the realm of his own, uh, you know, favorite ideas and and um, and motifs. And and Edward Norton is fantastic as as Monty Brogan. It you know might be one of the best performances I've ever seen by him. Uh, it's uh, Edward Norton is not one of my favorite actors. Uh, you know, I've I've seen him in films where. He seems to be kind of phoning it in a little bit, but that is, is definitely not the case here. He, he definitely has a, a connection to this material and a commitment to this character. And uh, it seems he and, and Lee must have had a, a pretty good working relationship on this film for everything to kind of click the way it does. Yeah, I think they must have. I, I've watched some of the um, extra features on the DVD that I own, and uh, they they definitely um, talk a lot about the process and, and, uh, and how much... Norton appreciated, you know, the way that Lee worked and the rehearsal time. Um, it's it's a really and it's and the film is full of of also other characters. Now, last week or last time when we talked about the Five Bloods, I mentioned how great it was to see Isaiah Whitlock Jr. <laughs> yes, here. Uh, as as who's here? Yeah, and I I thought that he developed his famous catchphrase in The Wire, which is a TV series I really, I loved, and I was very much, uh, you know, as many people, I, I absolutely adored The Wire. But he's he uses it here, too, and I won't say it, I won't say it on the air, uh, but uh, anyone who knows who Isaiah Whitlock Jr. is knows what his expression is. And uh, it starts with she. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, anyway, and uh, yeah, it is. Uh, anyway, so he, he says it a, a, a number of times here. He plays a DEA guy in this film, and he's not in it much, but uh, he is on, you know, he's completely recognizable in the film. And this is a film, again, I want to draw people to what Roger Ebert wrote about it. Um, and here's what he had to say. Everybody knows that Spike Lee is an important filmmaker, but do they realize how good he is with actors, how innovative he is with style? We live in a period where many filmmakers use either a straightforward meat and potato style or draw attention with meaningless over-editing, queasy cams, and showboat shots. With Lee, as with any classical director, the emphasis is on the story and the people, but he's always there nudging us, being sure what we notice, moving the camera, not merely with efficiency, but with grace and innovation, because he doesn't go out of his way to call attention how many realize what a master stylist he is. In this film, he benefits from pitch-perfect performances from Norton and Hoffman, of course, from Dawson, Cox, Pepper, and from Anna Paquin. So, so yeah, Ebert liked all the performances, but he's right, you know, it's like there's a lot of the film where you're just enveloped in the story, but occasionally Lee will do something, like he'll he'll lock the camera down in front of an actor's face, like he does in one moment where Philip Seymour Hoffman's character comes out of the bathroom. He's just had his interaction with Anna Paquin, and you just see him looking up uh, as, at, like, his face just kind of empties. Like, he just, he looks bereft. He looks like, oh, I just crossed over the line. I made a mistake. 
and he just he's he's aware of it as he's doing it and he he draws us in with the look on his face and the camera just stays on his face and it's uh it's a remarkable moment um yeah then the the, the film is full of those yeah that the, the stuff between uh jacob and anna paquin's mary uh, is is remarkable because we're you know we are we seeing sort of jacob's misreading of her signals uh you know that she's you know, she's just having a good time and he's taking it to mean something completely different. Um, you know, is, is she as smart as she lets on? Uh, it's, you know, it's all about point of view. And, uh, and it, you know, like, for example, to some people, Monty might be a bad guy. And to some people, he might be a good guy who just, you know, needs saving kind of thing. I, I, the fact that the characters are all so multidimensional over the course of this film is uh, it says a lot about you know, again, how direction and, and the writing and, and the acting all, you know, really hit the mark on all on all points. Yeah, but I mean, yeah. And, and I mean, with Jacob uh, and Mary, it's, you know, she's 17. Yeah. She's a student in his class and he's he is a person of power over her in in the relationship in that. Well, he's school. definitely in the wrong, and, uh, for sure. <laughs> he's definitely but, in the wrong but he's like he's he's like okay yeah how do i i deal with this how do i deal with my own uh needs in this situation and i mean he knows he knows what the right thing is to do but yet you know he knows it because when he talks to his friend uh frank about it he invents a a colleague yes. <laughs> uh you know who's 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 the one with the problem and then frank sees right through that charade um and we're just as an audience, you're just sat sitting there queasily going, oh, God, oh, God, this is going to go so badly. Don't do it. Oh, yeah, Don't do it. You know? It's a horrifying moment. Uh, <laughs> and and, oh, and Hoffman is so good at, at selling those kind of moments of weakness. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Uh, and it just it reminds you, I mean, it, it, how much we miss him as a character actor because because those kinds of roles, he made them. He made them so plausible, you know. He played these characters. He had a. He was fearless in playing characters that had moments of weakness and that would would go. Who, who recognized it in themselves? Like they were self aware that they didn't have the strength to make the right decisions, but would go ahead and do them anyway, um, and then pay the price, you know. And he's so good here. Uh, and yeah, everyone else is terrific as well. Like you, I agree with you. Edward Norton is someone who. He's not always as a. I actually appreciate Edward Norton more as a character actor because, as a leading man, I don't find him always terribly sympathetic. And I feel like as a leading man, you often need to have the audience on your side. And uh, I don't know why that is. Um, there's something kind of calculating about him. But here, he is playing a guy who has lived his life a certain way, and he's smart enough and he's charismatic enough to have made a better decision and done different things with his time that he didn't do and uh and as a result now he's facing seven years in prison and his life is going to change i mean everyone knows like once he goes away that's the end because when he ever however he comes back whatever he has to do to survive in the prison as the uh the, the russian gangsters tells him survival is the thing you've got to do but you know at what cost at the end of the day even if he comes out and he's still alive he won't be the same guy he was when he went in and everyone else, and who knows whether he'll even be recognizable to his friends. Uh, it's, it's, uh, it, it, it's. This is what haunts the film. And uh, yeah, I, I, I'll say it again. It's an amazing film. I, I so enjoyed it. And we haven't really talked too much about the relationship between him and his dad, Brian Cox, who's also terrific here in a kind of a smaller role, but but still, you know, obviously 
he has a good relationship with his dad and he's been helping his dad out and his dad feels uh you know his dad runs a bar but he's he's fallen behind and especially following the death of um you know of monty's mom things kind of gone to hell in a handbasket for for um james brian cox's character and uh and and so you know james tries to maybe help out his son in in a way that uh, is kind of unexpected and i don't want to say too much about it um because the 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 final chunk of this film goes in a place you, you you don't even really see coming um as there's a beautiful sequence towards the end of the film that uh the less said about the better but yeah uh, it's kind of you were talking about dreams it's kind of like a dream (laughs) yeah it's it's shot in kind of a you know the the sort of blown out contrasty way and 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 uh so you kind of know that is this what i you know i'm is this what i'm seeing or is this just in his head kind of thing and um again don't want to say too much about that but it's you know it's it's kind of a an amazing uh you know, I I won't say that they pull the rug out from under you while it's going on because you know there's always that seed of doubt that what you're seeing is actually happening. But but it is an amazing sequence and uh, really a beautiful sort of capstone or epilogue or what have you to the film. And uh, you know, it, it's it's that makes the journey to get there really worthwhile. Yeah, no, absolutely, absolutely. I, I love that aspect of it. And and uh, you know, it's um, I gotta say, I mean, I know that. Um, uh, Do the Right Thing is considered Spike Lee's great film, his masterpiece, and his most important film, certainly. But it's a, this watching this is a great reminder of so many other of his qualities as a filmmaker, and that he has done great films otherwise. How this, how the Twenty Fifth Hour got uh, ignored by by um, you know awards uh, givers is, is shocking to me because I know it came out in January of 2003 it's a 2002 film but it came out right around award season and i think i think i'm sure that it was considered for them but for some reason didn't get the uh, the attention it deserved and it it really did deserve certainly for the uh, performances it deserved to get more attention than it did Thanks very much for listening to Lens Me Your Ears, the film podcast, uh, as we wrap up this look back at three great movies as uh, chosen by uh, Roger Ebert and, uh, you know, selected from a long list by us. You can go online to the Roger Ebert uh, website to see uh, a lot of his reviews. All of his reviews, as far as I know, are there. And uh, it's always great to go back and read what Roger thought about uh, movies, whether he uh, loved them or hated them. And he, <laughs> there were a lot of movies he really, he really, really, really hated. Um, but uh, I've, we've always felt inspired by him and uh, happy to have this opportunity to go back. And I think we're already assembling our list uh, of another Roger Ebert great movies episode, which we'll be doing in the future. Um, we are available if you want to find us on Facebook. Lends Me Your Ears has a Facebook uh, uh, page, and we're on Twitter at Lends Me Your Ears. I'm on Twitter as well, uh, on the name of my uh, my blog, Flaw on the Iris. And Stephen, you are too, aren't you? Yes, I've uh, got a Twitter handle, at NS underscore S-C-O-O-K-E, and you can find my work in the, the Chronicle Herald, either in the physical paper or on the website, if you want to go looking for it. 
Yeah, and uh, so that's how you get a hold of us if you'd like. We also have a Patreon account if you'd like to uh, support us and what we do here at Lens Me Your Ears. We would very much appreciate that. Um, we also want to give thanks, as we do every episode, to CKDU, uh, usually for the studio facilities, though we haven't been allowed back there to, to record, but hopefully soon. Um, and for definitely for airing the show every second Tuesday at 5.30. Many, many thanks as well to our producers at the Village Soundcast Network for all you do to uh, make us sound good. Thank you again for listening and uh, we'll see you next time. See ya. Lends Me Your Ears is hosted by Stephen Cook and Karsten Knox and is produced in Halifax, Nova Scotia at Village Sound for the Village Soundcast Network. All music courtesy of Gypsophilia. Send feedback to lendsmeyourearspodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening. This was a Village Soundcast Network original production.